continuing in our exposition of this letter to the church at Colossae, which Paul wrote, and we're in chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 11 to 12, but for context, I'm going to read from verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words. These words which were written to Your people a long time ago and We're meant to encourage them, to instruct them, to strengthen them. You may have stood the test of time as your word is forever fixed in the heavens. They stand to strengthen us and encourage us. So Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we look at these words, as we look at these truths, these principles, and we pray that your word would go forth in power and precision and that your word would make its impact upon our hearts to strengthen us, to encourage us, to point us to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was in the United States Army chaplain school a couple years ago, I had a class in which the instructor, who was a senior army chaplain, was teaching us about the importance of identity and purpose and how identity and purpose relates to resiliency in service members. And in order to teach on this subject, he used one illustration, which I was very familiar with. And he said that when a service member feels a strong sense of identity and purpose, and of a belonging to the organization and commitment to its mission, then that service member can endure a great amount of hardship and loss because they know who they are and what they are and where they belong. Conversely, when there is a lack of identity and purpose, then there is a higher rate of disillusionment, of despair, of delinquency, of substance abuse, and even, sadly, suicide. And in order to explain these principles in greater detail concerning identity and purpose, he used the illustration of the United States Marine Corps. And he said, as an Army chaplain, that out of all of the branches of the armed forces, the Marine Corps is by far the best at instilling a sense of identity and purpose in its members, its Marines. In fact, he said this as a minister who was also well-versed in apologetics. The United States Marine Corps has nearly all of the characteristics of a cult. (laughs) 
And as a student in the class who had also studied apologetics and evangelism and was a former Marine, I wholeheartedly agreed. <laughs> the, Mar- the Marine Corps is very cult-like because it, it strives to instill and maintain a strong sense of identity and purpose and belonging in its Marines. There, there is a deep sense of loyalty. Even the phrase, once a Marine, always a Marine. That is, that is true. And the Marine Corps, it, it does this. It instills this strong sense of identity and purpose in a few ways throughout the culture of the organization. But the primary way it does that is through symbolism. Through symbolism. You, you think about the logos, the uniforms, the colors, the emblems, the mottos, many other things. There's symbolism all throughout that culture of the Marine Corps. And it... It contributes to the identity and purpose of a Marine, of being a Marine, of belonging to that organization. And all those symbols, they they show the power of symbolism to affect a person, to change them, to instill in them identity, purpose, belonging, resiliency. And in this passage, there are two main themes which run through these two verses here, and they help us to understand the principles which Paul is trying to teach the Colossians. And those two themes are that of symbolism and identity. Symbolism and identity. And one of the principles Paul alludes to is that here in this, these two verses is that these symbols, which he is using to explain what he's trying to teach the Colossians, these symbols are not the substance. As he would later allude to in in, uh, chapter 2, they're not the substance. They're not the main thing. Though they are significant symbols and they are God-ordained symbols, they are still merely symbols which point to a greater reality in Christ. And in this passage, Paul's aim is to continue to fortify the Colossians against the false teaching and deception around them by explaining what Christ did for them in salvation through two powerful and foundational symbols of the gospel. Two biblical symbols, one Old Testament symbol and one New Testament symbol, which both point to what happened to us when Christ saved us. What happened to us when Christ saved us. First, we were circumcised in him. We were circumcised in him, as Paul writes in verse 11. In him also we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And in order to understand this symbol and what happened as Paul relates it to Christ and our salvation, in order to understand how we are circumcised in Christ and the significance of it, In regard to salvation, we must first understand the practice and the purpose of circumcision. And to do that, we must look at the circumcision which God decreed. We'll see circumcision in uh, a few different aspects. The circumcision God decreed, the circumcision God desired, and then the circumcision God did. But first, the circumcision God decreed, and that... As you, most of you may know, was first given to 
to Abraham, um, Abram at the time. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And we'll read along in verses 9 to 14. This is where we first see this, this act, this sign, this symbol. And it reads, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This act of circumcision was to be a sign of God's covenant. It it was a sign and a symbol that remained throughout the history of Israel. It was a symbol um, concerning their culture, their identity, their purpose, their covenant with God, the, the, the covenant that began with Abraham when, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and told him to go to another country, another place where he would make out of him a nation and a people and give him a land. And God, in a sense, as cuts a covenant with Abraham and gives him this sign. And, you know, for, for some of us, we, we might not like to, you know, think about circumcision all that much and, and the, the graphic details about it, but it's here in the Bible. And it's a key aspect, a key symbol throughout the whole Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And so it's important for us to understand that. This was not just decreed to Abraham, but it would later be reiterated to Moses as a reminder of the covenant, as a reminder of the redemption of the people, and as a prerequisite for entrance into the nation. And God ties this symbol of circumcision, this sign of the covenant, to another symbol, which is more of a practice and tradition. Both are markers of Israel's identity. And we can see this in Exodus chapter 12, and you you turn there, Exodus chapter 12, and this is just as the God is to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, and he tells Moses, he instructs Moses and Aaron concerning the Passover. Another key symbol and practice, tradition, feast, which was a key marker of Israel's identity and purpose. And and God ties both symbols together. And he says to Moses and Aaron in 
Exodus 12 and verse 43, he says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This was a key aspect, a key symbol of Israel's identity. This sign of circumcision to all the males that, that would remind them constantly of God's covenant with Abraham. It'd be a reminder of his faithfulness, but it also um, had other principles, other lessons that they need to be reminded of. And, and and God ties it to the Passover, another key symbol that was to be celebrated, a, 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 a symbol, and the whole Passover meal is full of symbolism, reminding the Israelites of their deliverance out of Egypt, but also pointing forward to uh, a future deliverance through Christ, as they would sacrifice the lamb and eat of it. All the elements of the Passover, and it's tied to this symbol of circumcision. God decreed this circumcision to Abraham and to Moses and, and, and to all of Israel. As, as Moses uh, writes Deuteronomy, the, the, the second reading or the second writing of the law right before the, his death, right before the Israelites are to enter into the promised land, to take control of the promised land and to um, inhabit it. Moses writes Deuteronomy, and he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verses 12 to 16, Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verses 12 to 16, he says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcision had many, many applications and indications and symbolism. But the main one was, it was a symbol of separation. That the people were to be separated, called out, separated from the other peoples. But it was also a symbol of salvation. That, that they needed salvation, that they, that they needed to be called out of the world, that they needed to be called out of their sin, that they needed to be cut off 
from their sin. And it wasn't just the physical, outward, external reforms that they needed. But they needed a reform of the heart. John MacArthur, in his commentary, he says this concerning circumcision. He says this, The cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin inasmuch as that is the part of the man that produces life. And all that he produces is sinful. It was the male organ which most clearly demonstrated the depth of depravity because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. Thus, circumcision symbolized the need for a profoundly deep cleansing to reverse the effects of depravity. This points back to the doctrine of the fall, of original sin, of total depravity. That our sin nature was passed on from generation to generation to generation. As even David would say in in Psalm 51 in his psalm of repentance, that in sin did my mother conceive me. And so this was a point of circumcision that it was to be a physical, external reminder of man's sin nature, of Israel's sin nature, of their need for separation from sin, of salvation from sin. It was a sign of God's covenant to Abraham, which also had implications in it concerning Abraham's sin and the sin of his people, the sin of all peoples, his need for salvation. This also points to the uh, importance of the virgin birth. That Jesus was born of a virgin because he was sinless. That sin was not passed on to him. It was not passed on through uh, his line, through his, uh, his earthly line, through Joseph. This is what circumcision pointed to. But there's also the circumcision God desired. Not just what he decreed, the physical external, but there's a circumcision which he desired. And he speaks of this through the prophet Jeremiah. As Jeremiah witnesses and is about to witness the destruction of Judah and the exile of the Israelites into Babylon. As Jeremiah sees uh, this destruction all around him and, and prophesies to the people, telling them to repent, God speaks through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verses 3 to 4. He says this, he says, For thus says the Lord, of, to, says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God was repeating what he said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He was repeating what uh, 
he had originally decreed concerning circumcision that what he desires is a circumcision of the heart. He doesn't just desire mere externalism or mere symbolism, but a circumcision of a heart which also shows that it's a circumcision that they could not do, that they were unable to do, and yet they were called to do it. God would say this again, would explain this again through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23, it says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Everybody's getting it. Judgment is coming on everyone because everyone refuses to turn their hearts to the Lord. Israel has been given this sign. They've been given the covenant. They've been given statutes and laws through Moses concerning God's decrees, his desires for them, what they would be. And yet they not only turned from his statutes and his desires and went in the opposite direction, but they continued to practice his statutes and his laws in a a mere externalism, paying lip service to God. And so God, he he, uh, speaks through Jeremiah later concerning what he would do in the later days, what he would do to rectify this situation, what he would do in bringing about a new covenant. And, And this passage is, I would say, is probably in one of the top five passages in the whole Bible. Jeremiah 31, where God reveals through Jeremiah the new covenant, what he will do. And he, in a sense, links back to the old covenant and shows its inability to save, but also its ability to reveal the sinfulness of man and their need for salvation. And he says in Jeremiah 31, and verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity 
and I will remember their sin no more. This is what God would do through Jesus Christ, through his blood, through his sacrifice, putting his spirit within his people so that they would not only seek to do his will, but they would desire to do his will. To know him at the deepest level in the heart, that their hearts would, in a sense, be circumcised, set apart. And this didn't begin with Jeremiah. This was, in fact, what God spoke through Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, explaining what he would do later on. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses 5 to 6, and, and Moses explains this, speaking about what God will do in later days. Explaining exactly what Jeremiah would proclaim here. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 5 to 6, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This was the circumcision which God desired. This was the circumcision that he would do. This was... A, a symbol which, and a practice which was to be understood both physically and spiritually. That there were spiritual undertones concerning the practice of circumcision. It wasn't just to be merely external. It was to point to a greater reality, a greater purpose. And even Paul he explains this in, in, in his great uh, magnum opus concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and his letter to the Romans as he comprehensively um, and succinctly and uh, systematically lays out the gospel. He points back to Abraham. He points back to the covenant with Abraham. He points back to the faith of Abraham. But he also points back to this symbol of circumcision. And what God had intended. In Romans chapter 4, Paul writes this. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 to 12. And you can read along here. He says this. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith 
that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham was considered righteous because of his faith. As we read in in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness because he simply trusted God. He trusted what God would do through him. He trusted God's word. He trusted God's covenant. And then after his trust, after his faith, after his statement of belief in God, then God gave him this sign. This sign to show that he would be set apart, that he, would, he was called by God, that he was separated from his people to be made into a new people. And because Abraham believed God and he believed God, he showed his, his faith in leaving his own people in, in taking this trek, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, meaning that he was justified by faith and therefore God decreed a sign to him of his covenant, which would symbolize not only his separation and salvation, but the need for separation and salvation of all people, of his people, of Israel. And this was an indicator. This was their identity. This was the symbol of their covenant, as even uh, David would say to Goliath or, or about Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of God? This was a key symbol throughout the history of Israel. Either you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. You're, you're in the family of God or you're not. But um, we can take symbols and, and focus more on the symbol than what the symbol is supposed to point to. And so they, need a, they needed, as we do, as all people do, a circumcision which only God could do. So we see the circumcision God decreed to Abraham, to Moses, to Israel through Jeremiah, and the circumcision God desired of that one would be of the heart, one would be at the, the deepest center of the person to separate him from sin, and then now we see the circumcision that God did. Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. As Paul says, this was a circumcision that was made without hands. That was spiritual. That was one that would put off the whole body. Not just a part of the body. One would, that would take away, in a sense, the, the whole sinful nature of a man. This was a complete and radical circumcision, cutting away, which God did in his people. A, a circumcision that was uh, uh, foreshadowed in the new covenant, in the law, in Deuteronomy. Circumcision which only Jesus Christ could do. In his commentary on this passage, uh, Curtis Vaughn, he writes this. He says this concerning this circumcision of Christ and how we can better understand this. He says this, in union with Christ, believers have true circumcision. That is, they have found in him the reality symbolized by Mosaic circumcision. The Christian circumcision is defined as the putting off of one's sinful nature. 
literally the body of the flesh. The Greek word for putting off, a double compound, denotes both stripping off and casting away. The imagery is that of discarding or being divested of a piece of filthy clothing. The description of Christian circumcision as not done by hands of men is obviously intended to contrast the Christian circumcision with that required by the Mosaic law, but was also advocated by the false teachers. That Mosaic circumcision, which represented the cutting away of man's uncleanness and was the outward sign of one's participation in Israel's covenant with God, was made with hands, was physical, and affected an external organ of the body. The circumcision that the believer experiences in Christ is spiritual, not physical, and relates not to an external organ, but to one's inward being. In short, it is what elsewhere in Scripture it is called circumcision of the heart. And the tense of the verb were circumcised points to the time of conversion, a one-time act that happened through Christ which Christ did. This was a circumcision that God did, one that was made without hands, one that put off the whole body of flesh, one that was of Christ. And so therefore, as Paul explains this to the Colossians, he's in a sense uh, fortifying them against the the asceticism and the legalism that, that came by a way of the Judaizer and Jewish background believers that would try to uh, keep uh, Gentile believers and, and try to, to keep them into bondage or enslave them into the Mosaic law, which they themselves could not keep. As Peter would say in Acts chapter 15, and yet Peter himself would, uh, we could see him fall prey to the human traditions and Galatians, as Paul had to confront him. And Paul, throughout all his letters, he, he confronts this, this issue of legalism, and, and particularly even this, this Jewish legalism, this Jewish asceticism, which was marked by circumcision, the main sign and symbol of the covenant. Another commenter, he uh, he writes concerning his passage, he says this, circumcision symbolized man's need for cleansing of the heart and was the outward sign of that cleansing of sin that comes by faith in God. At salvation, believers undergo a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. This is the new birth, the new creation and conversion, the outward affirmation of the already accomplished inner transformation is now the believer's baptism by water. MacArthur would write this. When viewed as a rite necessary for salvation, baptism is as superfluous as circumcision. Some see support in 2.12 for baptismal regeneration, but Paul would hardly replace one rite with another, arguing that the change from spiritual death to spiritual life is affected by water baptism would make Paul as much of a ritualist as those he was condemning. Water baptism is no more in view in 2.12 than physical circumcision was in 2.11. Both verses speak of spiritual realities. And so we have this Old Testament symbol, and then now we have this New Testament symbol, both 
pointing to the realities of our conversion, of our redemption, of our salvation in Christ, of what Christ did by setting us apart, by calling us out of sin, by redeeming us from our sin, cleansing us, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. And and Paul is, in a sense, refuting asceticism and legalism and mere symbolism and and using these symbols to point to the greater reality of what these symbols were meant to represent. And yet, there is this danger of baptism being misunderstood and misapplied just like circumcision. And it's interesting how he, he um, goes from one symbol to the next and kind of trying to uh, fortify the Colossians against these errors of asceticism and legalism. That they need something else. Now he's explaining what the symbols pointed to. He's explaining the substance, not the shadow. And, and we can see this. We can see this throughout church history, in recent church history, how baptism has been misapplied just like circumcision was to a mere externalism. Just like what the Jews did with circumcision. Many Christians have done with baptism. That it becomes a legalistic uh, symbol. It becomes uh, just a mere uh, initiation and entrance into the community, into the community of faith. And then, just as the Jews had to do, just as they had to twist Scripture to support this um, external externalism, this, this legalism concerning circumcision, so many Christians or so-called Christians have done with baptism. And so we see first and foremost concerning these two symbols of separation that we were circumcised in Him. We were circumcised in Christ and second, we were baptized in Him. We were baptized in Him. And, and, and in order to understand baptism, just like Circumcision, we must understand where it came from. The initiation of baptism. How did it start? And what was the history of it? And we can read in the Bible that it starts with John the Baptist, but prior to John the Baptist, there was this sense of ceremonial washing that many of the Jews did before they were to... Worship God before they were to go into the temple. And and you can go to or or look online and see um, what the Jews would call mikvahs or baths, where they would go into and do the ceremonial cleansing um, before they would walk in and go under the water and then walk out before they were to go into the temple. But for in, in terms of baptism, this was a ceremony that was to be performed if a, a, a Gentile wanted to become a Jew. That they not only had to be circumcised, but they had to be baptized. They had to do this ceremonial cleansing, showing that they are washed from their old ways. And, and the thing is, is that when John the Baptist came, everything concerning him, everything he said, everything he did, was in a sense a scandal. Here's this madman. <laughs> comes out dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey, baptizing people in the River Jordan. And, and all the people are 
what is this? What is going on here? Who is this God? Who is this madman out here preaching repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan? And we see this in Matthew chapter 3 when, when John the Baptist comes on the scene. You can turn there, Matthew chapter 3, in, in the beginning of the gospel. And, and Matthew is, in a sense, um, explaining who John the Baptist is and what he came to do. And he writes this in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John the Baptist, what the, the, the scandal was concerning his baptism was that he was doing a Jewish proselyte baptism to Jews. He was, in a sense, saying... You're truly not a Jew. You need to be baptized. You need to become a Jew. You need to repent. And so here's John the Baptist performing this ritual, which was meant for uh, Gentiles to come into the nation, to come into the kingdom. And there's the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders are coming to him. What are you doing? And he's, in a sense, explaining what the whole Old Testament explained. You need to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You need to become a true Jew. You need to repent. And so, this was the scandal of John's baptism. But he would point towards Christ's baptism. As he said, that... Christ will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That you will either come to him and be baptized in the Holy Spirit or you will be baptized in fire as you go to the eternal fires of hell. But you must come to him. You must be immersed in him. You must know him. You must circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And so this is where baptism started. And then 
baptism would uh, later on take on, um, in a sense, a fuller meaning. As the disciples would see Jesus crucified and buried and resurrected, then they would start to see this fuller meaning, this symbol, what it truly represented. That this was a symbol of what God did through Christ, of what Christ did through the power of the Holy Spirit. That it wasn't a mere external act. And and just like what happened with circumcision, the same would happen with baptism. And there would be it would become a mere externalism. And, and here's the verse that, that many of our, um, some of them we can call brothers and sisters in Christ. Many others, we, they clearly don't seem to be in Christ. They seem to be in an apostate religion. But those who uh, we would call paedo-baptists, who baptize children. This is one of the verses that they look to In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching to the the people and calling them to repentance in Acts chapter 2, and and, um, he says to them, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many others he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day, about 3,000 souls. And it's interesting because what um, the Pado baptists would say, would say, well, well look, he said, um, this promise is for you and for your children. For all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself, and, and they, they rip it right out of context, saying that, in a sense, that baptism replaces circumcision. And this shows the, the power of human tradition. It's interesting in, in studying for this passage and, and seeing, um, you know, the pedo baptism and, and, and uh, their argument for why they baptize children who are, in a sense, unbelievers. And you see that, that Paul's, Paul, what, what Paul's trying to do here in this section of Colossians is to fortify the Colossians against uh, deception, against philosophy, against false teaching. And he writes in, chap- in verse 8, according to human tradition. According to human tradition. And, and, and why do people baptize babies? Because of human tradition. Because we could trace it back to probably right around the 400s, right, right around um, the time when um, persecution 
for the church and the Christian church waned and, and, and uh, it became accepted, um, not so much as a state religion, but as, in a sense, it was, it was okay. And churches multiplied. And, and then, the, as prosperity all, all, always does that to the church, it hurts the church. And the gospel gets diminished. And people want to be a part of the church. And, and, and people are sincerely uh, afraid of hell. And, and, and then they, they, they mix the symbol with the substance. And, and, and there's a sense that, that baptism, baptism truly is an entrance into membership, one of the marks, but it's just a symbol. It's not the true entrance because the true entrance is the baptism by the Holy Spirit into becoming into the body. Then we baptize in obedience to the Lord's command, showing his death, burial, and resurrection, showing that, that something that happened to us, but throughout the history of uh, the Middle Ages and uh, the history of the Catholic Church, we see this, this practice of infant baptism because, sure, we want our children to be saved, but that's not how it happens. They get saved, and then we do the rite. We do the symbol. But then there's also a sense of tradition because uh, in, in the medieval times, uh, um, one way in, in order to understand who your citizens were in your kingdom, in your district, in your nation, was to go where all the records were kept, all the rolls, the church. You kept all the records and the baptisms. And so when the Reformation came about, baptism was, in a sense, a bridge too far for people like Luther and Calvin. They, 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 it was a, a bit too far. And so um, our heritage traces back to the Anabaptists who rebaptized, who looked at Scripture and said, hey, we, we got this all wrong. You must be a believer first. You must be baptized by the Holy Spirit first, and then you are baptized, you are immersed symbolizing Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the Anabaptists were persecuted because of that. Martin Luther himself puts an Anabaptist in a dungeon. But that's our tradition. John Piper, in his um, book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, he, he speaks about um, this issue of baptism. He says this, he says, I am a Baptist because I believe that on this score we honor both the continuity and discontinuity between Israel and the church and between their respective covenant signs. The continuity is expressed like this. Just as circumcision was administered to all the physical sons of Abraham who made up the physical Israel, so baptism should be administered to all the spiritual sons of Abraham who make up the spiritual Israel church. And what he's, he's talking about those on the other side. He is, when he says continuity and discontinuity, he's talking about those things that, that continue from the Old Testament forward and discontinuity, those things that do not continue. And he goes on to say this. He says, Consider the difference between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God as Jeremiah and the author of Hebrews describes them. 
Both these biblical writers say that under the new covenant, one will not have to look at other members of the covenant and say, know the Lord. For to be a covenant member is to know the Lord. This implies that entry into the old covenant people of God was by physical birth. And entry into the new covenant people of God is by spiritual birth. It would seem to follow then that the sign of the covenant would reflect this change and would be administered to those who give evidence of spiritual birth. But even even the old covenant sign, even, even the sign of circumcision was to point to a greater reality, to a need to circumcise the heart. It was given to Israel, and the, the, the Israelites were to circumcise their male children, and they were a part of the covenant community. But even as Scripture would, would say that um, they must circumcise their hearts. They were a part of the nation. But here we, in the new covenant, we have a covenant that is one in which God did. Through the heart, taking out that heart of flesh, uh, heart, heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, washing us um, by the water of regeneration, causing us to be born again, showing that the Spirit uh, baptized us into Christ. And, and so, in looking at um, how we were baptized in Him, we see the initiation of baptism in John the Baptist and throughout uh, uh, church history, but. Now we, we see the intent of baptism was to show the need for cleansing from sin and the washing of regeneration. It was to point to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Even Christ himself, after he was baptized by John the Baptist, he says this in Luke chapter 12. At the end of Luke chapter 12, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I can't? I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What is Christ speaking about? What's he talking about this division? And, And on the tail end of his baptism that he is to be baptized with. He's talking about what will happen in a family when one person becomes a believer, when one is born again and the rest aren't. There is division in that household. That one is truly of the family of God and the rest are not. And we can see this division in most of our lives, most of our families. There is division because we truly follow God. We've been born of God, and, and, and we want to follow God. And when we um, try, strive to live out our Christian lives in holiness and to witness to lost family members, there's opposition. There's division. Christ has divided us. He's divided us because he has died for us. And he was raised for us. This is the baptism that Christ was talking about. His baptism of death, burial, and resurrection. The intent of baptism was to show um, our cleansing from sin, our washing of regeneration, of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. But it's also to show to be a symbol of union with Christ and a member of his body. Baptism points to that 
intimate union with Christ, that we are united with Him as we go under the waters and as we are raised back up. It, it symbolizes that we were united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That greater spiritual reality of Christ dying on our behalf. And, and Paul points to this union with Christ in baptism, talking about the spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit, what happened on Calvary, what happened when we were born again, and, and how because of that we can um, walk in newness of life, we can walk with, with um, power over sin. And he says this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is what happened to us when Christ died, when we were converted. We're, in a sense, united with him in that baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so we see the initiation of baptism. We see the intent of baptism. But more importantly, we need to see the important baptism. Not the importance of baptism, but the one which is important. The one that matters. The one which the symbol points to. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes to Titus, he, he explains to Titus at the end of this letter about how we are not to be cantankerous or hostile towards unbelievers, but we are to be kind and loving, trying to reach them, because we ourselves were once foolish and sinful. He says in Titus 3, verse 4, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope. Of eternal life. This is what Paul is speaking about in Colossians 2, verse 12. He's saying, We were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what God did through Christ, what Christ did, as he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down and I will raise it up again that that will happen to us as well. And as we, uh, we in obedience, uh, carry out this ordinance of baptism with new believers, we are pointing back to that spiritual reality 
of the greater reality. It's just a symbol. But Paul speaks of this greater reality. These two great realities of the circumcision of Christ and the baptism of Christ, of the Holy Spirit. How God saved us. And, And he speaks about these symbols in this way to fortify these Colossians against these errors, these false teachings concerning legalism and asceticism and mere law keeping. I remember when I was a hospice chaplain, I... There was a few times where I would request to baptize people. And uh, you could understand they're getting close to death and they're, they're scared. And for some of them, they uh, maybe grew up in a church. Maybe they had good church attendance. Maybe they even knew uh, much about the Bible. And, and, and maybe even they could ex- explain the gospel. But it was almost as if I have one thing left undone, one thing that will really get me there, one thing that will seal the deal, and I need to do that. I need to be baptized. And I was always skeptical about it. And, and, but at the same time, it offered me that opportunity to explain the gospel, explain exactly what baptism was. And for some, it was a relief that like the thief on the cross, they did not need to be baptized. But there is an ascent, a sense in which the thief on the cross was baptized. He was baptized by the Holy Spirit. He had the true baptism, the one that mattered. And, and it's interesting because it, it shows the power of human tradition, the power of asceticism, a legalism, of of just placing your hope in a rite or a sacrament or a duty rather than in Christ himself. And it wasn't just me um, you know, serving as a hospice chaplain. I would see this in regards to baptism. But as you know, I mixed amongst other military chaplains and, and would hear the same stories as they're going on deployment and they, they get these, these soldiers, these troops that would come up to them and... and you know, usually right before they were going to battle, or maybe they, maybe they weren't going to go into battle, but there was just the possibility that they might, or the possibility that they might come into danger and they might die, and they would say, Chaplain, Chaplain, I need to be baptized. And the sad thing is, is too often you'd hear stories of chaplains, military chaplains, who would baptize uh, people, and, and they meant well. The soldiers meant well, but they didn't do their due diligence to explain baptism. And certainly, there may have been a few that were uh, genuine, but more often than not, I would hear stories of a uh, military chaplain, well, oh, do you know what so-and-so did, this soldier, or what, what he's been doing? Yeah, it's, he just came back from deployment, and, you know, he... Um, He's not doing good. His marriage is falling apart. He's not. Um, he's drinking, substance abuse, all these other things, story after story. And then you hear the military chaplain say, well, I remember I, I baptized him. He came up to me. He, he was going to chapel. I, I, I explained, you know, what he needed to do. And, and here's... The, the, the main question, because um, 
too often we can go through the, the motions, not just with baptism, but in, in, in all of our Christian life. But especially with regards to baptism and coming into the faith and evangelism, here's the main question you must ask yourself. Have you been baptized? Have you received the true baptism, the important baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Are you, has your heart been circumcised? Are you truly in Christ? Have you come to Him rather than just uh, you know, uh, raising your hand and walking an aisle and getting your ticket punched and, and, and uh, going through the motions and, and doing the right, doing the sacraments? Do you know Him? And this is the problem in American evangelicalism and the Western churches. We've been playing games with the gospel for far too long. And because we've been playing games with the gospel, we've become susceptible to deceptions of false teachings and worldly philosophies which have infiltrated the church in the forms of easy believism and pragmatism. Just doing what works. Just get them in. Tell them the bare minimum. We don't want to upset anybody. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. We don't want to step on any toes. Because we're not sincere with the gospel and with God and the realities of sin and, and death and hell. And the fact that a person needs to be born again, they need to have that true inward heart work. We're susceptible to easy believism and pragmatism, to uh, asceticism and mysticism. We're susceptible to legalism and licentiousness, to liberalism and the social gospel of diminishing the gospel to just, you know, Jesus came to free you from oppression. We're susceptible to humanism and postmodernism that, that making man and his own thoughts the standard of thinking that somehow mankind can reason his way up to God and figure God out on himself rather than submitting to God's revelation, understanding who God is and what he is and what he has desired for us. We've become susceptible to feminism and egalitarianism that, you know, anybody can do anything in the church as long as they mean well and they, they're proficient. Rather than saying, what does God's word say about man and woman and the roles for men and women and, and, and parents and children and government and church? And most recently, we've, we've fallen, we've become susceptible to deceptions and false teachings and worldly philosophies of wokeism and neo-Marxism, pitting people against one another from, by oppressor and oppressed classes. This victim mentality and, and, and taking uh, the, the truth and, and, and the, the um, tragedy of racial, racial, racial strife and, and, and turning it into something that, that we need to uh, change our whole way of doing church because of it. No. No. We have one standard. We follow that one standard. And if we follow this standard, if we follow the, what, what God has revealed to us, we'll not be led astray by the subtle forms of legalism and asceticism, which Paul is fortifying the Colossians against right here concerning 
something that is outlined in the Bible. It's a very, very subtle heresy and false teaching that can easily sneak its way into the church and, and is, in a sense, in all many of our minds. That if we just do certain things, that, that then we'll truly be spiritual. And look, it's in the Bible. Circumcision's in the Bible. Baptism's in the Bible. But we haven't truly submitted to the Bible to understand the, the depth of it, the true nature of it, the symbolism of it. And the answer to our weakness and susceptibility to the deceptions of false teachings and worldly philosophies in our age is the same answer which Paul gave to the Colossians in theirs. That we must understand and remember the great work of salvation which Christ has done on our behalf and that all of our sufficiency and all of our fulfillment is found in Christ alone. There is no greater manifestation of God's power in the Christian life after conversion until we are glorified in Him after death. There's nothing we can add to. And I explained this last week in this concept of theological mathematics. That whatever you add to, you subtract from. And if you add to the work of Christ, you're actually subtracting from it. And whatever you add becomes more important than the thing which you're adding to. That your rites and your sacraments and your um, mystical knowledge, all these things become more important than salvation. There's no religious activity, no work, no service, no position, no title, no knowledge which could add to or enhance Christ's work of salvation in you. Nothing. And this salvation is what circumcision and baptism are pointing to. They're merely symbols. They're merely symbols which point to the need for and the greatness of the work of Christ in salvation. And we understand the symbol and what it symbolizes and the substance and what Christ did, then we will be fortified against the assaults of false teachers and asceticism. It's interesting that you know, on the front of our bulletin, and, and I don't choose what comes up on the bulletin or how they're printed off. Uh, Vicky prints them off. They're just the way they are. But this, this quote from Augustine was there. It says this. It says, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. He is everything. He is all we need. He is, he is everything. He's most valuable. He's, he's why we are here. He's why we worship. We, he's who we worship. He is, as the song says, our all in all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for these symbols, and yet, Lord, we have to confess that um, we, as the hymn writer said, are prone to wander. We are prone to deception, and even from our own thinking. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us to stick to your word, to focus on your word, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we may uh, run the race that you have set before us, that we may be faithful. Guard us, Lord. Guard us from deception. Guard us from worldly philosophies and heresies that are so subtle that we can easily fall prey to them. Help us to cling to you and to cling to your word and to 
live lives according to your word and according to your desires and not our own. In Christ's name we pray, amen.